Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Patrick Hamilton, and I'm the Campus Pastor Ministries here at our Rolling Hills Nashville campus. In today's message, you'll hear from Pastor Nick as he teaches from Exodus 3 when God calls Moses out from the burning bush. We hope that today's message encourages you and challenges you to listen for God's call on your life. Now, let's hear from Nick. Some of you are looking at that image and you just think it looks so grand and you can't wait to get out there and pack your bags and be one with Nick. And I look at it and I start to breathe really funny and I'm super terrified about what that guy is about to embark on. It's okay, we're all in this for a different type of adventure. Um, The first job that I had right out of college was actually called Epic Adventures. Um, It was a company that some buddies and a mentor of mine started to work with the North American Mission Board, I've shared this before, to partner with strategic focus cities to plant churches in the Northeast where there were less churches, um, less evangelical gospel-sharing churches in those communities. And we would send kids, youth groups, on mission trips to those cities, New York and Boston and D.C. and Philadelphia, uh, in order to work with those local church planters just to give them arms and legs for a week to go out into their communities to share the gospel and to invite people to come and check out this brand new church that was starting. Now, last week I celebrated my 21st wedding anniversary to Susan. And so 21 years ago, yeah, that's exciting. Um, So 21 years ago, we got married, we went on a honeymoon, and then I came back and left for an immediate six-week journey to where I spent the next few weeks leading teams in those cities. Now, one week in particular, uh, Dave Snyder and I, he was from the Hendersonville area, not of Tennessee, but of North Carolina, super rural part of this western end of the state. He and I drew the short straw of having to drive the truck from right in the heart of Manhattan with all of our gear and supplies and resources through Connecticut, through the tiniest little tip of Rhode Island and into Massachusetts where we could go to Boston and set up for the very next week. And we're coming through Rhode Island. It only takes an hour to drive across it from one end to the other. And we're only snipping apart 30 minutes of the state. And we see an exit that's got both gasoline and restaurants. And we didn't want a burger. It was the year 2000 and we were hanging for some riblets from Applebee's. Um, It's 20 years ago, don't judge. Okay, so we pull off on the exit and we see that the parking lot is kind of full. We didn't have much time to spare. We knew we had to gas up. We knew we had to get back on the road if we wanted to get there early in the evening. And so he drops me off, I run inside and the hostess is standing at her station and she asks me this question, how many in your party? And I responded by saying to her, just two. Two words, that was it, just two. The look on her face, you would not believe it. (gasps) Where are you from? I was like, "Mm, North Carolina, can you tell? Just two words gave it completely away. She knew immediately that I was not from her neck of these woods, that I had come from someplace far off, just Two words said a lot about who I was in that moment. We ended up spending about an hour at that Applebee's because waitstaff after waitstaff, the manager came out to talk to us because once they heard me, oh, they could only wait to hear Dave Snyder from the western part of North Carolina. They were asking us question after question after question, interested in getting to know who we were and why we were there and what we did, and they could not get over the accents. Hey, come listen to these guys talk. Like, they just couldn't believe. And I sit here and say, I don't think I sound Southern, but to them... It was a whole different story. Just two words spoke a whole lot more 
We're gonna encounter two words in this passage of scripture today that are gonna say more to us than we ever need to hear from God's word. And it's really the most important words that we might ever hear. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, I invite you to turn them to the book of Exodus chapter three. If you're zeroing in on the book of Exodus and you know anything about the biblical story of God creating the world and setting apart this people through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and eventually Joseph, you know that the people of God are living in Egypt and they're slaves. That Hundreds of years have passed. Nobody remembers who Joseph was anymore. And now the people are enslaved by the Egyptians. And there is a woman. They're killing all the baby boys. And there's a woman who, in faith, instead of throwing her baby boy into the Nile, she actually puts him in a basket and he floats down and he's picked up by the princess. He's raised as a prince, this little Hebrew boy named Moses. She drew him out of the water, named him Moses, raised him in the Pharaoh's palace. He's poised to be a leader in Egypt, but... He observes the difficulty that his people are facing. He kills an Egyptian. He's caught red-handed, and so he flees and goes and lands in this community where he finds a father-in-law, takes a wife, and now he's, according to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, now Moses, here he is as an older man, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, we call this Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Now we have the benefit today of seeing this story in retrospect, in hindsight. And so we know that eventually this guy Moses is gonna go to Egypt. He's gonna say, let my people go. That's a song that children sing. And he's gonna perform all these miracles and there's gonna be some plagues. And eventually he's gonna walk the people out. We're gonna get to those points in the story over the summer, but we're reading these verses from chapter three and we already have the end in sight. We know that the sea is gonna Heart. We know that they're going to march into the wilderness. We know that God is going to deliver to them the Ten Commandments. We know that they're eventually going to make it into the promised land. We know that all the things that God is about to say are eventually going to come true. But in this point of the story, he's tending the flock of his father-in-law and moving the sheep from one side of the wilderness to another. We have the benefit of understanding that this one verse in the story tells us what the ultimate bottom line of the story is. That Moses went from tending the flock of his father-in-law to shepherding the people of his heavenly father. He went from moving one group of sheep from this side of the wilderness to another to eventually being the leader called out by God to take Israel and move them from one side of a wilderness to another. God's purpose for you, God's purpose for any of us, God's call on our lives is always, always, always gonna line up with his character and his word And it's often, like in Moses' case, gonna line up with our experiences and our setting and our circumstances and even our gifts. You know, in scripture, there's, there's always been something about a shepherd right from the beginning. It's just not an accident that Moses finds himself tending the flock of his father-in-law and gets a call from God that he's now gonna go tend the flock of God's people. We continue the journey of shepherding throughout scripture. First Samuel 16, 11, all of this guy's sons are brought, Jesse, all of his sons are brought before the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king over Israel. And one by one, God says, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And, and Samuel asks Jesse in 16, 11, are these all the boys? Are this all the sons that you have? And Jesse, responds, the youngest is still left, but behold, he's tending the sheep. God called a shepherd boy to be the king over his people. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, we get this whole 
book of the Bible that's all about wisdom and all about the meaning of life and it concludes with the words of the wise are like goads, like cattle prods. The masters of these collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails driven into wood, not popping out, not stumbling your toe on the deck when the nail starts to come over to the top. It's firmly embedded, given by one shepherd. One shepherd. Uh, forecasting and foreshadowing that Jesus Christ is going to be that shepherd. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11, the Lord God says, Behold, I myself, you shepherds over Israel, y'all are terrible. That whole chapter just chronicles one moment after another about how bad of a job the, the priests and the prophets, the shepherds over Israel are doing. And so God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And then John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus stands before a group of people and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There's always been something about a shepherd in scripture. And according to these verses, there's apparently also something about the number 11 because that's where they all find themselves in the chapters of the books that they're in. There's always been something about a shepherd. And God's using shepherds to, to tend and to care for his people and to move them from one place to another. And when we find Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the whole goal of the sanctification process in our lives, that we move from one place to another. So we, we pick up in, in verse 2. It says, there, right there on the base of the mountain of God, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now, if you ever have a chance, and I was privileged a couple of years ago to be able to go to Israel and to walk through this wilderness and to see the path that the Israelites took from Egypt into the promised land of God. And we started our journey down there in the wilderness and the guide was telling us, hey, you see these bushes, they're, they're scattered all over the place, but there's a great distance from bush to bush to bush. They're in a, a wasteland, a wilderness, a, a desert, and there's obviously a lack of water. Well, these bushes, if they pop up out of the ground, what the shepherds would know is, I need to go there. Not that there would be running water nearby, not that there would be a brook or a creek, but they knew that those type of bushes growing up out of the ground meant that there was a water source beneath the surface. And so naturally, as a shepherd taking care of your sheep, you would want to find those type of bushes. In Hebrew, it's the word sneh. Now, the Jewish midrash, which is a commentary on the Old Testament scripture that tells what these passages of scripture mean to us, it says that this bush very likely had a high concentration of oil in it, which means that it could burn really hot for a very long time without being consumed. And so there was a, a scientific principle for why this bush was burning, but yet not being consumed. But it struck Moses and he wanted to see what was going on. So he goes over to it, knowing that there'll be water beneath, and he hears the voice of God coming to him from the bush. That same Midrash passage says that it was very likely a thorny bush a thorny blackberry bush, and those thorns would have grown facing down so that you could easily stick your hand into it without getting pricked. But coming out of it was when all the injuries occurred. And the symbolism in the Jewish Midrash is clear. The God's people went into Egypt really easily. Hey, it's a place where there's food in the middle of our famine. Hey, it's a place where our, our family members already are, and we can go there and live, and we can be taken care of. It was getting out that was the problem. And so Moses sees this sight and he, he goes over to the bush, verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush. Now, now the sight 
of the bush would have been, whoa, this is kind of crazy. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. The voice from the bush, now that would have been uncanny. Never before would he ever have experienced anything like this. The voice of God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. One of my best friends on that Israel trip a couple of years ago is a good friend of mine and Susan, her name is James Etta Cleveland. And we went there and she was like, Lord, where's the milk and honey at? Cause I'm not seeing it yet. <laughs> Cause you're wandering around the wilderness going, Lord, you're gonna have to show up soon because this right around, it does not look like what you promised. And yet God said, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now God says, the cry of the Israelites, the collective cry of my people has, has, has reached me. And I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. The word oppression literally, it means to make them small. Anything ever make you feel small? Anything ever make you feel less? People today are oppressed. This isn't an Egypt story. It's an America 2021 story. Made to feel small, made to feel less. So God says in verse 10, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I wanna know, just as a sidebar, it's in your notes today. If you can see these words and translate them over to your life, this word that's nestled in the the history of God's people applies to us still today. I I want you to see and hear this from God's word, that that God sees you. I, I think there are so many moments in life where we just don't know that He's aware of what's going on around us and, and, he, and he, see, he, he sees you and he knows you because he created you. God sees you. God hears you. He, he said, I've seen my people. I've, I've heard their cries and I'm concerned for them. God has great concern for you. Jesus looked at a field of flowers. Jesus looked at some wild birds and he looked, he's like, hey, don't you know that if your heavenly father takes care of these flowers, if if your heavenly father takes care of these birds, don't you know that he has that much more care for you? Like God sees you and he hears you and he has great concern for you. He offers you a rescue. He he offers you a, a rescue. That rescue's name is Jesus That rescue plan has been instituted not just when the New Testament starts, but right from the beginning of time. God knew he would send his son as a savior to rescue and redeem his people because right from the beginning, God has had an incredible plan. And and so maybe you can just put pause there and like put your AirPods in and not listen to anything else that I'm gonna say for the rest of the day, but, but get that part. That wherever you are, 
God sees you. No matter how far you feel, he sees you. No matter how loudly your life is screaming, I promise you that he hears you, that there is great concern by your heavenly father for you and your well-being that he has offered you from the very beginning a rescue plan named Jesus. He's there. So what's your bush? What's, what's your, your, your bush moment? I think a lot of us have spent a great portion of our life, particularly if you grew up in the life of the church and you grew up doing Bible study and you grew up hearing these stories and understanding these narratives, we've, we've thought to ourselves over and over again, I just wish that God would set a bush on fire, not like a dangerous fire because like I don't want the house to burn down and like, you know, Smokey the Bear to come out and say, only you can prevent force. Like I don't want anything like that. Like I want my house to go up in flames, but like I do wish that there'd be something that's so visible right in front of me and so audible right in front of me. Like I really wish, like if God would just send me a burning bush, I would know exactly who he is and exactly what he wants for my life and I would follow him anywhere and everywhere that he tells me to go like we longed for this burning bush moment where God would give us his clarion call in life to help us understand who he is here it is this is our burning bush moment this, this word of God has always been for us a, a burning bush moment. It has been challenged. It has been trampled. It has been outlawed. It has been forsaken. It has been forbidden. You talk about this word of God coming under fire, and yet the voice of God still persists in it. We just have to listen to it, and I, I dare say take off our shoes when we approach it out of, anybody want to take off their shoes today? Because this is a holy book. And when we come to it, and when we read it, and when we devour it, it's a holy, sacred moment. What's your bush? Maybe it was an audible moment for you where you literally heard the voice of God. Maybe it was just the pleasure of intimacy with his word for you. Maybe it was a really fiery, challenging circumstance for you, a thorny thing that you just couldn't seem to get away from where you felt trapped. For Israel, what we're gonna see in the story is that what happened over the next few months in their lives became a giant burning bush where they would over and over and over again hear and see and recognize the voice and the power of Almighty God. He was literally about to burn the whole thing up. What's your bush? What's that voice? What's that circumstance? What's that sight that you just can't get away from what's that word and what is it saying to you as a staff team at rolling hills we all get a name tag on our door or our cubicle as many of us work and we're invited at the beginning of our staff time at rolling hills to select a life verse or a favorite bible verse to go on that right at the beginning 14 years ago i was like hey hey put me in for hebrews chapter 12 verses 28 and 29 it says therefore since we are receiving since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. The Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible says, let us hold on to grace. Let us be thankful. Let us hold on to grace so that we may worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I don't wanna see the bush. I wanna be the bush. I want God to use me to articulate his word to the rest of the world. I wanna be so consumed with the things of God and the words of God and the people of God and the plan of God that I don't worry or fret about anything else. God has called you 
He's called you to be his, to trust him and to follow him and to represent him in the world. He's called you with a general call that he issues to all believers. Hey, know me, trust me, follow me. But then there's a specific call for your life. Hey, go back to school. Hey, move to Colorado. Hey, be a teacher. Like there's a general call for God's people, but there's also a specific one for your life. And he speaks both when we approach him in his word. The the biggest part of chapter three and four as it relates to us and our time with Moses, is that Moses saw the burning bush and Moses heard the voice of God and then Moses still offered up excuse after excuse after excuse of why he couldn't do that. So don't tell me as a people, oh, if God would just set a bush on fire in my yard that does not get consumed and if he would just speak to me with an, with an audible voice, invite me to go barefoot as I approach him and say some words, oh, if God would just give me a burning bush moment, then I would do everything that he says. Well, Moses was reluctant. The truth is that we probably would be too. And and so if you dive into this passage of scripture and and you move down in the passage of it to Exodus chapter three, starting with verse 11, you'll see those excuses. What's your response to the call of God? We can look really easily at his, like Moses, we all struggle with identity. We we all struggle with identity, who who are we? Says in verse 11, but Moses said to God, like Moses, was given a a clarion call by God and Moses responded by saying, hey, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I'm just a shepherd. Like, Like I'm no longer in the palace. I'm no longer considered his son. I'm no longer in the chain of command. I'm I'm just a shepherd. Who am I that I should go and do this? Who am I that I get to pastor and lead a campus of Rolling Hills? Who am I that I get to be the husband? Who am I that I am called to parent my children? Like, who am I? We all struggle with identity. Identity is wrapped up psychologically in the experiences, the relationships, the beliefs, and and the values, and the memories that that literally make up a person's sense of self. And so the idea of an identity crisis is when that sense of self gets all convoluted and you can't land on who you are. It's really obviously common in teenagers and in young adults, but according to the AARP, yes, sometimes I read articles from the AARP, There's a rise in identity crises in adults over the age of 50, particularly post-pandemic, because people are looking around at the crisis that the world has been in, and they're trying to reevaluate, hey, who am I? What really matters? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? What relationships are essential? What is my role as I transition into a new phase of life in a new reality here and today? And God gives a a remedy for the way that Moses feels. This identity crisis kind of moment, God responds with his presence. Because in in verse 12, it says, I will be with you. Do you get that? That the remedy for you asking, hey, who am I? Is the voice of God saying, I'm right here. It's not knowing who we are that's going to solve that identity problem. It's knowing where he is and that he is with us that makes up the difference. So Moses responds a second time and it's all about his insecurities. You and I have those too. He says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Suppose, (laughs) is there a more wishy-washy word that he could have used in the moment? 
Like, like I'm, I might do what you say, God. I'm kind of insecure about what you're gonna say, God. Like I'm not, I'm not certain that I'm gonna follow through this, but it, on the off chance that I actually do what you say, what's their response gonna be? Because I'm kind of insecure about it. Like, like, like I'm scared to ask because I don't know what the answer's already gonna be. You have those kind of insecurities, so do I. God responds and says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're gonna say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. It's the word Yahweh. It's something called the tetragrammatron. And it's literally four Hebrew consonants. Did you know that the language of Hebrew is only consonants? And that later on in like the sixth century, these guys called the Masorites had to go back and add little, little dots and notes to help us understand what the vowels are so that we could pronounce these words. Well, Y-H-W-H are the English characters for how we would say the word Yahweh, this, this personal name of God. When Moses looked at him and said, hey, I'm insecure. I'm not sure I'm gonna do this because if I do this, I'm not exactly sure what their response is gonna be in advance. And I need you to tell me how this is gonna go down before I do it because otherwise there are too many unknowns and I'm not willing to press forward. God responds to the insecurities of Moses with this promise. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And if we were to do a history lesson today, this is the exact land that generations ago, God had looked at Abraham and said, hey, stretch it out. Look at the land that's before you. I'm going to give this to you and now it's occupied by nation after nation after nation and they're warring with one another and they are evil before the face of God and he's looking at Moses and saying I'm about to fulfill promises that I've been making before you were in this world son God responds to our insecurities by the revelation of his promises third time Moses goes to him with an excuse. He, he's not just having an identity crisis, who am I? He's not just having a, a, an insecurity issue, like, hey, suppose I do this, what's the response gonna be? He's talking about his own inexperience. You and I are inexperienced. I've never led a campus of a church before. When Lily Kate was born, she's 14 years old, gonna be 15 pretty soon. I had never been a parent before. I've certainly never taught another human how to drive a car before. Get ready, buckle up, people. Inexperience is how we operate. Many of you are graduating college and you're looking for a job and rejection after rejection after rejection says, hey, you're not experienced enough. Like, hey, if everybody tells me that I'm not experienced, where am I ever gonna go to get some experience? Moses answered, God, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Emphasis on me. Emphasis on my. And God responds to him in chapter four, verse two, eight and nine, he, he basically says, hey, if they don't believe you, he, he does all these miraculous signs. He's like, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. Hey, grab that staff, throw it on the ground, turns into a snake. Hey, stick your hand in your pocket, pull it out, leprous, got disease. Hey, put your hand back in your pocket, pull it out. Oh, it's clean and, and healthy again. God gives him sign after sign after sign. And in verse eight, he, he looks down at him and he says, hey, check this out. If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, Maybe they'll believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, the river, and pour it onto the dry ground, and the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. You know, God always responds to our inexperience and our 
lack with his power. He shows up, and it's, it's his power, not ours, that's on display. My inexperience doesn't matter in this moment. It's the power of God that ultimately does, and there's a fourth. If you skip down to verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses very likely had a stuttering problem or a speech impediment and was not confident public, you know, public speaking is the number one fear in America. The number two is snakes. Clearly, I'm okay with the first, but do not bring a snake up into this place. (laughs) I really struggle with the second. Moses, slow to speech. Can't do it. He's dealing with his own inadequacy. There's an identity crisis. I'm fueled by my own insecurities. I, I can't grapple with my inexperience, and at the end of the day, it's all about my personal inadequacies. And God responds, he says, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. The remedy for my inadequacy is always God's provision. Moses comes back with the final word and basically just says, hey, can you please just pick somebody else? Can you please just pick somebody else? And he's like, listen, I'll even let your brother go with you and he will be the mouthpiece. I will tell you what to say and you'll tell him. It's like a game of elementary school telephone. I'll say it to you, you say it to him, he'll say it to them. God provides. Whenever we're inadequate and ever when we come face to face with the fact that we just can't, he always says, I've got your back. All of Moses' reservations, every single one of them, can be summed up by the phrase, I can't. And every single one of God's reminders are rooted in I am. Just two words. But they say a whole lot. When you read your English Bibles, maybe you're reading a Spanish Bible this morning. If you are, I can't help you. Like, I don't know. I don't, Chinese Bible this morning, I have no clue. But if you're reading an English Bible this morning and you come across the word Lord, and it's in all caps, you may just think, well, what's this? This is just an emphasis word. That's an indication that this word Lord, it's the Hebrew word Adonai, but in all caps, it represents the Hebrew word Yahweh. So if you see it in capital L-O-R-D, then lowercase, it's the word Adonai. If you see it in all caps, it's the word Yahweh, the personal I am name of God. When, when he looked at Moses and he says, I am has sent you, it's the Hebrew word Hava, and it just means I exist. The self-existent, always existent, powerful creator God of the world was calling to Moses and was sending Moses. And then he says, hey, tell them the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, your forefathers, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, tetragrammatron. Tell them this God has sent you. Post-Babylonian exile, if you fast forward through scripture and you realize that The nation state of Israel was set up and they were doing great under King David and they were doing okay under King Solomon and then all of a sudden they split under their descendants and they were divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and Israel fell to the Assyrians and Judah, the southern kingdom, fell to the Babylonians. Well, after the Babylonian exile, the people were really concerned about the name of God. 
They had already begun, like the name God, Elohim, had become pretty widespread because he was no longer just Israel, this one little nation's God. His name had been spread throughout the nations. Other people knew now who this God, Elohim, was. And the people had begun to be afraid to say the word Yahweh or to write down the word Yahweh. And so they just settled on, hey, we're going to call him Adonai with some emphasis. The Masoretes who added the vowels, they took the vowels from Adonai and added it to the Y-H-W-H, and that's where we get Yahweh, how we know how to pronounce that word, the personal name of God. And then you get it into Latin words. How many of you have ever learned the word Jehovah? Or you've gone through Bible studies which taught you like, okay, Jehovah Jireh, I'm gonna learn all the different names of God, my God who provides, my God who is, my God who creates, my God who sustains, my God who redeems that Jehovah. Well, that's just a transliteration of the word Yahweh because in Latin languages, they didn't have a Y, so they just substituted the J. And then when Southerners like us started to pronounce it, we were like Jehovah. And then the people from Rhode Island didn't understand what we were talking about, so they came to our table and they wanted to hear more. That word Jehovah is just a different pronunciation, German-inspired, of the word Yahweh, the personal name of God, the name that he invites his children to call him, the name that we rest on, the name that becomes just two simple words in our English language, but it says, oh, so much more. Saying the word Yahweh means you believe he exists. Saying the word Yahweh means that you believe he's right there. Saying the word Yahweh means that you understand that he sees you and he knows you and he hears you and he comes to rescue you. Saying the word Yahweh means that you understand that he has all the power and all the provision and all of the presence that you need to combat all of your insecurities and all of your inadequacies and all of your inexperiences and all of the identity crises that you may have in life. Just two words are the remedy for it all. All of Moses' reservations, all of your reservations, all of my reservations about following God's call on our life, whether it's the general will to follow him and trust him in hard circumstances, or it's the specific will to move and go and be whatever specifically he has called you to move and go and be, all of our reservations will always rest on, I can't. And all of his remedies will always be, but I am, I am. Ultimately, hearing the call of God, whether it comes from a bush that's on fire or a word that sets your heart on fire, ultimately, hearing God's call means readiness to submit to his will. Because if it's Yahweh, he can be trusted. And if it's Yahweh, you're ready to do it. Skip down to verse 20 in chapter four and it says this. So Moses took his wife and his sons. He had kids at this point. Took his wife and his sons and he put them on a donkey and he started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. When you discover who he is, when you figure out who this I am God is, that's when you realize where your identity really lies. And that even with all your insecurities, even with all your inadequacies, even with all your inexperiences, you don't want anything else but his plan for your life. And in the moments 
when you have trouble getting there, where, where your heart is already and your brain's just falling behind, whether the circumstances that you're facing in the world don't seem to match up with what the promises of his word say, you just need two words, I am. He is and he always will be and he always has been the self-existent, ever-present, all-encompassing, promise-fulfilling God of this universe and he can be trusted. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you today for the opportunity that we have to be in this place and to center our hearts and our attentions on your word. My prayer for these friends of mine in this room today is that you would inspire them with your call on their life, that the call that you've extended for them to know you and to trust you, to receive the love that you've offered to them through Jesus, but, but ultimately, it's a call that requires a response. And so, Father, today, more than anything else, my prayer is that all of our collective responses would be, and all of our individual responses would be, yes, okay, sure, I'll go. Pack up your wife, pack up your kids, put them on the donkey, let's go, wherever you say, God. Whatever you say, God, we will do, God, because of who you are not because we trust ourselves, not because we believe in ourselves, not because we're gonna rely on ourselves, because that's always gonna leave us in the I can't column of empty-handed faith. But when we realize that you're a God of power, you're a God of presence, you're a God of provision, we're gonna tell you today that we trust you and that we will follow you. God, as a church and as a people, we've already been in hard places. You've already asked more of us than we thought we could ever do. Here we are, three churches combined into one. Here we are walking on the, what we hope will still be the other side of a pandemic, still gathering together, trusting you for favor and believing that you have called us to be your people right here. Father, we understand that as hard as it has been, that it still may get harder. And in the middle of that, your call just gets better. And so we tell you today that we trust you and that we will follow you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, Rolling Hills Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We are thankful for you.